We're going to read from the Bible together just now. We're going to read from the New Testament and the book of Romans, chapter 1. It's on page 1,129 on the Red Bibles in the pew. Romans, chapter 1. And we're going to read from verse 18 down to verse 23. Romans, chapter 1 beginning at verse 18, and as we read, we remember this is the word of God, and so we can trust it completely. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. Good evening, everybody, and thank you, Peter, for your welcome and Nigel for your invitation uh, to be here this evening as we think of this theme of the Christian faith in relation to science. Incidentally, I was a teacher. I spent a lot of years teaching uh, sciences, chemistry, biology, and then doing research for a lot of years until I entered the ministry uh, pretty late on in my late 30s. Uh, So I've always had an interest in the subject from those days and and still do from a faith perspective. But let me, as we come to this subject, read a single verse. We have already read from Paul's letter to the Romans, and we now read from Psalm 14. Uh, And just the very first sentence of that psalm, uh, you won't need to turn it up because it's a single sentence. It said, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Let's take a moment to pray and then we come to God's word. Father, we ask this evening that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. May he do uh, that which is his appointed task to take your word and cause it to enlighten the eyes and refresh the soul and rejoice the heart for your great namesake. Amen. Christians can have a crisis of faith uh, for one of many reasons, but one of the perhaps most common ones is because at this particular uh, time in which you're living, the aggressive secular movement, which ridicules the Christian faith as unscientific, which is being made popular by the books of people like Richard Dawkins, and other so-called TV celebrities like Darrow Brain and Ricky Gervais and Ben Elton and Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie and so on. A friend of mine in Drogheda wrote me a letter two Christmases ago. He had been reading the books of one of these guys, and he had come to Christian faith or professed faith, and he simply said in his letter, John, he said, I have decided to follow the path of reason rather than faith. And he backed off his Christian faith and backed out of the church. Now, what are the reasons that uh, these people, uh, secular people, give 
for ridiculing the Christian faith? Well, it's to do usually with one of three things with being modern. They will say, for example, that Christianity is an outdated relic of the past, of a superstitious past. We are modern 21st century people. Or they might put it in terms of education. They will tell you that uh, now that we are educated with modern science, it uh, does away with the need for belief in God. It explains the things that we used to use God to explain. It's to do with education. Or thirdly, according to Richard Dawkins in particular, it's to do with intelligence. He reckons, according to his surveys, that uh, Christians come from the less intelligent part of society. So, so now you know that's his argument in his book, The God Delusion. And I think the first thing to say in, in, by way of introduction that this particular approach uh, to faith in God is nothing new. Uh, the psalmist writes, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And by the word fool there, he doesn't mean a stupid person. He doesn't mean a person who doesn't have intelligence, but he means someone who is a superficial thinker. Somebody who doesn't think, think things right through to the end. And the question we might ask, though he wrote a long time ago, would he say the same things if he were writing today? And I want to suggest that he would not only do so, but he would do so with even greater conviction. So I want to suggest seven reasons why we should reject this approach of what the Bible calls unbelief. And here's the first reason. Firstly, because of the false premises upon which it's based. The first thing which is pretty obvious to say is that there is nothing modern at all about unbelief. The psalmist was writing probably 3,000 years ago, and he was clearly very familiar with that condition. He said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So it's nothing at all to do with being modern. And secondly, it's nothing at all to do with intelligence or education. For every intelligent educated unbeliever. You can go along to any street corner and gather 20 people who are not particularly intelligent or particularly educated. And you'll discover when it comes to this question, they say exactly the same things as the so-called educated unbeliever. Unbelief is shared equally between the intelligent and the unintelligent, the educated and the uneducated. It's nothing at all to do with that. And furthermore, Many of the finest minds of the centuries, including the founding fathers of modern science, were Christians. Now, I don't want to bore you here. It may be that you haven't studied science or aren't particularly interested. But just in case you are, let me fire through quickly some names that some of you may recognize, uh, those who are the founding fathers of science. Copernicus, Galileo, and Kepler were the founding fathers of astronomy, all Christians. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the brilliant mathematician who predicted what today we call computer language. Isaac Newton, the father of modern physics, spent more time reading his Bible than he did studying science. He's, he's of course, associated with the laws of motion. Robert Boyle, if you've heard of Boyle's Law in Chemistry, the father of modern chemistry, came from Cork, spent nearly all of his money promoting Christian missions. Uh, James Joule, you may have heard of the, the Joule, the unit Joule, the father of modern uh, thermodynamics. Uh, James Maxwell, electromagnetic theory of light. Uh, Lord Kelvin, you'll find a statue, incidentally, in Botanic Gardens associated with low-temperature physics. He was a keen Bible student. Michael Faraday, who invented the dynamo and pioneered electrochemistry. Nobel Prize winners from Rutherford, who split the atom. And incidentally, in his laboratory, in the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, he had the words of the psalm written above the door, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who have pleasure in them. He was an early Nobel Prize winner for physics, uh, Max Planck, uh, famed for quantum theory, 
right through to Francis Collins, who very recently unraveled the human genome. All uh, uh, Nobel Prize winners in science, all of them keen, committed, biblical Christians. So let's just begin by saying this. Unbelief has nothing at all to do with education or with being intelligent or otherwise or being modern. So don't let anybody take you down that route. That is simply not true. The second thing that the Bible would remind us is that unbelief is a condition of the heart, not the intellect. Notice how the psalmist puts it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Unbelief is a prejudice. It's a rejection of God. It's a desire to suppress the truth. Listen to what Paul says in Romans. We read this earlier. Peter read it. I think what may be known about God is plain to them, but they suppress the truth. His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in the things he has made. But they refused to glorify God or give thanks. Their thinking became futile. They became fools. Unbelief is a prejudice we bring to this subject. The, the word Paul uses uh, when he's speaking to the Romans, he said they suppress the truth. It's, if you like, taking a beach ball. If you go to the beach in the summer and you try to hold a ball under the water, it keeps coming up again. You keep pushing it down, coming up again. Paul says they hold down the truth. They don't want the truth. Now, I'm not saying that. Richard Dawkins himself admits that. Listen to his words here. He says, we have to assume that the first living thing happened by accident, since the only alternative is an intelligent creator. And we give that idea short shrift. In other words, we don't even allow that into the question. If you like, his unbelief is not something that he gets from a science. It's the attitude he brings to his science. So remember that unbelief is a condition of the heart, a sinful heart. It's nothing to do with the intellect. Thirdly, we reject unbelief because of the limited understanding of life that it represents. Let me tell you a silly story. Here's a scientist, a physicist. He's in his laboratory, and as he looks across the bay where he lives... There's a, a bay just outside his, his laboratory. He sees an intermittent light flashing. Now, he's never seen such a light before, so he switches on all his instruments, and he begins to measure everything that science can say about that light, its wavelength, its intensity, and so on, its frequency. And he, he prints it out on his computer, and he's given his scientific explanation and description of the light. Now, down on the beach below at the bay, there's a young girl guide walking along. She failed her O-level physics. She's not all that good in science. Uh, but she's a girl guide. And when she sees that light flashing, she blushes. Because she knows a couple of things about that light that the scientist doesn't. Number one is her boyfriend lives across the bay. It's Valentine's Day. And he promised he would send her a Valentine's message. And secondly, she is a girl guide, and therefore she understands Morse code. And she knows what the message is saying. I love you. I love you. I love you. Can you see how two people are looking at exactly the same light and giving two completely different descriptions of that light? And I put it to you that the scientist has missed the most important thing, the message that that light is giving. If you like, God speaks in two books which complement each other. He speaks, first of all, in the world of nature. We investigate that by science, and it describes how the world works, and in his revelation in the Bible, which explains the who and the why behind the whole world, the universe, and our lives. 
Science alone gives a limited understanding of life. It cannot tell us anything about the meaning. Fourthly, there's the evidence that unbelief chooses to ignore. Think of the evidence that Paul is saying in Romans, first of all of the universe outside us, and then of what we are on the inside. Take the universe on the outside. You will probably know the Big Bang Theory uh, tells us that some 13 billion years ago, everything that exists in the universe, that's every planet, every galaxy, every solar system, everything that exists, billions upon billions of galaxies, were compressed into a tiny, tiny particle smaller than an atom called a singularity. That's what they believe. And somewhere around 13.2 billion years ago, give or take a few weeks or whatever it was, it exploded. And that created the universe that we now inhabit. That's where it all began, according to modern scientific theory. Now, there are at least three questions I think we can ask about that. Number one, if that particle in which everything existed that existed, there was nothing outside of it according to this theory, if that particle had existed for all eternity, if it always was, and at some point it exploded, then something outside of itself had to disturb its equilibrium and cause it to explode. But according to the theory, there was nothing outside of itself. It was everything that existed. So if that's not the case, if it didn't always exist, that means it must have come into being out of nothing. And never in the history of science has such a thing ever been known to happen, that nothing becomes something. And here's the third question we must ask. How, when this singularity, this particle, did explode, did it create this wonderfully elegant and beautiful universe? Explosions create chaos, not uh, beauty and balance and elegance as we have in this beautiful world. Let me just read uh, two comments from modern cosmologists who are writing in this subject. Professor Paul Davies is from the Arizona State University. He's an atheist, but this is what he writes. This universe is so incredibly unlikely. It is hard for me to resist the conclusion that some influence with an overview of the entire cosmos at the moment of its initiation was able to manipulate the parts so that a universe came into being that is friendly to human beings. Here's a secular cosmologist saying he can't get away from the idea that something or someone bigger than the whole thing manipulated the parts to create this incredibly complex and beautiful universe. Or let me quote one of the two guys who discovered what's called the background radiation that helped confirm the, the theory of the Big Bang in the mind of modern scientists, a man called Arthur Penzias. This is what he writes. What we see is consistent with purposeful creation, exactly what I would expect with only the book of Genesis to go on. And then he quotes Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There's one of the two guys who helped to confirm the theory of the Big Bang Theory is saying that what he discovered is exactly consistent with what the book of Genesis tells us. So that's something to do with the universe around us. But what about the kind of human beings that we are? Take, for example, this inner voice that we call conscience. That voice that speaks of right and wrong and what I ought to do and what I ought not to do. Now, the question is, where does that voice come from? Why do we have a conscience? 
If, as some suggest, we are simply higher animals like all the other animals and we exist by the survival of the fittest, well, in that world, the strong crush the weak, a lion kills a gazelle, there's no conscience involved, that's simply how life is. Why, for example, do we say, I ought? Where does that come from? There is no ought, if you like, in the world of nature. Uh, Animals drive strangers from their territory, don't they? When that happens with humans, we call it racism. So why do we have this conscience? Why do we have this ought? Why do we care for the vulnerable? Why do we talk about human rights? Why do we give worth and value to human beings if we're just higher animals? I'll always remember a conversation I once had, and I've never quite forgotten this. I used to teach biology in a college And there was another uh, teacher there, a lecturer in sociology, and she and I had a common dislike, and that was for the staff room at lunchtime because people moaned and complained about their hours and gossiped, and it wasn't a particularly nice place to be. So I preferred the company of the snakes and the toads and the frogs in the lab in which I worked, and I spent my lunch there reading a book and having my packed lunch. And this lady started to join me because she also hated the staff room, but she was an ardent atheist and ardent feminist. And so I always showed her through the door first, which she hated. But we, we would spend most of that lunch hour debating the whole business of faith and, and so on. But one day she invited me to her home for her little boy's birthday. I didn't know how to get out of it because her husband was then a very eminent professor of psychology one of the youngest professors in Europe at the time, a bit of a whiz kid, and I really did not want to share a meal with this particular couple. But I didn't know how to get out of it. She wanted me to bring one of the African clawed toads that we were breeding as a birthday present for her little boy. Anyway, I found myself saying yes, ending up going to her house near Queens in Belfast. And the meal started, and her husband wasted, I think, 15 seconds before he launched straight in. And he said something like, how can anybody with any intelligence believe what you believe. And I asked him this question. I said to him, Tony, uh, the only difference, well, first of all, I asked him, I said, tell me what you believe. And he said something to the fact that he was what we call a chemical determinist, that we are nothing but the DNA, nothing but the chromosomes, nothing but the molecules that make us up. So I said to him, Tony, the only difference in your philosophy of life and mine is that I can live by mine and you can't. Now, that provoked him a little bit. That got the conversation going. And he said, what do you mean? So I said to him, take your little son, Patrick. That's the the little boy whose birthday it was. He steps out onto the Lisburn Road here, and a big red bus comes down and runs over him. That's just, as far as you're concerned, a rearrangement of chemicals on on the street. Is Is that right? Now, he clearly wasn't very happy about the illustration. He thought it was a bit crude. And I said to him, Tony, I'm not saying that. I don't believe that, but that's what you're telling me. You're saying there's nothing but a rearrangement of chemicals. So I asked him this question. I said, tell me this, Tony. Why do you give to your son or attribute to him a value and a meaning and a significance that he doesn't actually have according to your theory? And I still remember what he said. He said, I don't know. I never thought of that. So I said, Tony, do you mean to tell me that you're teaching and living a lie? You're saying one thing in your classroom, but you can't live by it in the real world. And again, I'll always remember what he said. He said, I suppose I am. So I said to him then, Tony, do you mind if I suggest to you why 
you attribute to young Patrick a meaning and a significance and a value and a purpose and a worth. Because he has significance and value and meaning and worth. And your heart tells you the truth which your philosophy denies. Our conversation ended. He said something like, John, I would dearly love to believe that what you're telling me is true. That, the conversation ended there. I never saw him again. But I was very struck by the fact that his philosophy simply didn't work in real life. It didn't fit the facts. Why do we attribute to people meaning and value and worth? Well, we shouldn't be surprised that we do. If every human being is made in the image of God and precious, which is what the Bible tells us. The desire for or this voice of conscience within us. But take another uh, aspect of the human condition, and that is the world of religion. They've recently done an academic survey in over 250 communities worldwide, and it has concluded that over 80% of human beings, doesn't matter where you go in the world, have some belief in a God or a higher being who runs the universe. Where does this innate sense of God come from? That's the question. There was a study done a couple of years ago in the Oxford Center for Anthropology, and this is what they discovered Studying religion and children. Here's what they said. Children have a predisposition to believe in God and a world created for a purpose. It does not need to be taught. It's natural for a child to believe in the God and the purpose behind the universe. And we shouldn't be surprised because as Augustine put it, you made us for yourself and Our hearts are restless until they find the rest of you. Or as Paul puts it, you made us that we might seek after you and know you. God made us for himself. Or take the desire for meaning. I don't know whether cattle in the field grazing, whether they have any conscience or whether they worry about the meaning of life. I suspect they don't. They seem to be quite happy just grazing along. But human beings can't live without meaning, without a sense of purpose. And yet, you and I have been brought up in this generation, and especially in the world of biology, based on a lie. And the lie tells us that our origin was meaningless. We're just here by chance accident. Our death is meaningless. It's no more significant than the leaves falling of the trees. But in between these two meaningless endpoints, we have to give some kind of meaning to our lives. And there's a very tragic outcome, and that was particularly true where I was in the Republic of Ireland, but I think it's true here in in Northern Ireland as well. And that is in the epidemic of teenage suicides. The real tragedy of young people who, for whatever reason, decide that life's not worth continuing, and they end their lives. And the Irish College of Psychiatrists uh, had a conference, and some years ago they were looking at this whole question, why is it that young people desire to end their lives. Why do they not want to live on? And the original conclusion was it's to do with drug taking and binge drinking and so on. But they came back a couple of years later and they came to the conclusion that that is not the reason. Those are only the symptoms, not the cause. And this was the phrase that they used, that young people, let me find the right phrase, there's a spiritual void due to a lack of significance. And they went on to say it was due to the loss of a religious understanding of life. That young people found no significance in their lives, no meaning, and therefore they felt that life was not worth living. 
Now, we should not be surprised that people seek after meaning if God created us and created us for a purpose. That's how we're made, made in the image of God for his purpose. Or let's take another aspect of our human condition. That's this instinctive sense of eternity that we seem to have, that inbuilt sense that we were made for more than this life. It's very interesting that even in the Stone Age cave paintings in Spain and France that they've discovered there over 30,000 years ago, these primitive people have painted pictures of an afterlife. And they're saying we were made for more than this life. They may have been unsophisticated people, but they had that inbuilt sense that this life's not everything. I remember when I was down in the city of Kilkenny being asked to speak at a Rotary Club. And the guy who was the chairman said to me, John, this is not a religious group, so I don't want you to speak on any religious subject. Uh, the chairman was a Jew. There were a couple of Muslim businessmen, and the rest, I think, were probably nominally Roman Catholic local people. But it was not a religious meeting. And he, uh, so I said, what on earth do I talk about? And he said, tell us about your work. So I had to somehow talk about my work in a non-religious way. But anyway, to cut a long story short, I'll not tell you what I talked about. But when I had finished, the very first question came from a local surgeon. And this is what it was. He said, John, every day of my life, I help people die without pain. Can you tell me how we can help people die with hope? This was in a non-religious meeting. This was the very first question. And I said to him, actually, I can't. I can't. But I think I only know one person who can. Only one person who can stand at a graveside and say with authority, I am the resurrection and the life who ever lives and believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And I said to the doctor, do you know anybody else who can say that? He said, no, I don't. Here was a, a secular man. And what was his question? How can we help people die with hope? Why would he expect to have hope? because it's an inbuilt thing in all of our lives that we were made for more than this life. And what I sadly discovered was that one year later he himself died because it may have been at that point that his illness was already causing him to uh, worry about that question. I have a, a relative, or had a relative, uh, indeed two relatives, a husband and wife, who are ardent atheists. And when the husband died three or four years ago, I was at the funeral we, we visited them every Christmas, and the one thing we never talked about, and they never mentioned, was my work. They talked about everything else but, but they were ardent atheists, and they didn't venture into that world. They thought, you know, I must have a screw loose to be involved in, in the work of the church that we were in, so they never talked about it. But when it came to the funeral, I was rather uh, admiring of them, because all the way through the funeral, there was no mention of God. Nothing religious. They sang some songs, folk songs, there was some poetry, they reminisced on the life and, and such like, but nothing at all to do with God. And I thought to myself, at least they were consistent. They believed there is no God and they were consistent, they didn't bring in some religion at the end. That is until I got into the cup of tea, the wake as we call it, after the funeral. And the wife came over and we started to chat. And she said to me, well, I suppose he's looking down on us now. And I wanted to say, could you not be consistent to the end? But you couldn't. Why? Because the Bible says God has put eternity in the heart. We were made for more than this life. We were made for eternity. 
So my fourth reason is all the evidence that unbelief ignores. But let me come fifthly to what I consider the supreme evidence, and that is the supreme evidence for God, and that's found in a person, is it not? How would we know if there's a world beyond our world? How would we know if there's an eternity and a heavenly realm? How would we know if there's life after death? Surely there's only one possible way. If someone came from that realm into our world and told us. And that is precisely what Jesus claims to do. He said, I have come from the Father and I will go to the Father. He said, "Uh, if you want to know the way to God, I am the way. John says in the first letter, the first gospel, sorry, the first verses of his gospel, in the beginning was the word, all things were made by him. And that word became flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth. Jesus claims to have come from God into our world to reveal God to us and to reconcile us to God. But he didn't only make big claims. He backed up those claims by the things that he did, healing the sick and stilling the storm, He says, little girl, get up to some who is dead. What did his disciples say? What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And even his death was not an accident, but the very purpose for which he came, he said, to uh, give his life a ransom for many. And not only was that, but his death was not the end, but the real beginning. The church of Jesus Christ was dead in the water on the day Jesus was crucified. It was gone. It was finished. And why did it grow explosively? Well, it grew explosively because it's a resurrection movement. If there was no resurrection, there would be no church and we would not be here this evening. And that church is growing across all the nations, drawing men and women from every nation, including peasants and professors and uneducated and educated people, drawn from every range of life. The church is still growing because it's a resurrection movement. And the single key question we need to ask ourselves It's not just, is there a God, but what do I make of Jesus who claims to have come from God? Does he have the ring of truth? Is this someone I can trust? Is he believable? And as many have pointed out, there are really only one of three options that we can come up with. Was he a deluded fanatic? Someone who thought he was God, but was actually a psychiatric case? Well, it seems to me there was never a more sane man and balanced person who ever lived than Jesus Christ? Or was he a deliberate, willful deceiver like some religious charlatans who want to uh, cod people? Well, it seems to me there was nobody more concerned about the truth than Jesus. Nobody more concerned to expose hypocrisy. If he was not deluded and if he was not a deceiver, is he God the Son that he claimed to be? And if so, will I give him his rightful place in my life as God and Master and Savior? That's the key question. Because he claims to be God, come among us. And when we are confronted with him, we are confronted with the God of whom the Bible speaks. Let me come to the sixth reason, and that's uh, perhaps a slightly different kind, and that is the testimony of hundreds of thousands of people. I'm going to mention some famous people, but let me begin in a personal way and speak about what it was like for me as a 17-year-old. I grew up with Stafford here in the town of Larne. We lived pretty close to each other. I remember one day being on the rugby pitch at school, and the school we both went to, and being called off the pitch by one of the teachers to say that your dad is taken seriously ill. I was 17 at the time. 
And 24 hours later, 48 hours later, my dad died. I was shattered by that. I wasn't yet a committed Christian. I'd been brought up in the Christian faith. I came to church, boys' brigade, all of those things. But in sheer desperation and pain, I went up to my bedroom and I had a tiny little Bible that I still have that my dad had given to me. He had signed it and given to me as a child. And I didn't know where to turn in it. I didn't know what to open, but I remember still opening it in my bedroom in tears. And I opened and the very first verse I saw was this verse, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Still remember, if you ask me where that is today, I can't tell you, but I, that's the verse I opened at. And I opened it again. And it said, how blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I couldn't tell you what that is. It's somewhere in the Bible, somewhere in the book of Psalms, but I couldn't tell you. But I opened it that. And then I opened it again. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? And I began to have this distinct feeling that somebody else was turning the pages and opening the pages and speaking to me in my need. It took another year before my stubborn will gave in and I committed my life to Christ. And I still remember on the night that happened at a little Methodist church in Narn, it was a real battle. I wanted to be a Christian and I wanted not to be a Christian at the same time. I wanted to hold on to my own self-will. But I still remember on that evening when I first invited Jesus Christ to come into my life, something happened. Something changed. I didn't change myself, but something changed within. The first thing was the Bible suddenly began to come alive with the book. And I had this hunger and this desire to to know God and this desire to read his word. It, it became almost a, I was starving for this book. And I wanted to meet with these people with whom I had nothing in common before. I was up at Queen's at the time, my first year. I found myself drawn to these Christian union meetings. Something happened within. The Bible, of course, calls it a new birth. But that was where the Christian faith began for me. I wasn't seeking God, but he sought me. And that's why I love the, the books of C.S. Lewis. In his book, Basic Christianity, he talks about the divine angler. He tells not how he was seeking God, but how God approached him. And he says something like this. He said, I was holding him at bay. I did not know whether to open the door or keep it closed. I chose to open the door. But you must picture me in my room at Magdalen College, feeling the approach of him whom I most earnestly desired not to meet, and getting down on my knees and admitting that God was God, the most reluctant and dejected convert in all England. He depicts himself as, a, if you like, the, at the other end of a line with the divine anger hauling him in. Not him seeking God, but God seeking and calling him. And of course, he wrote that lovely book, his autobiography called Surprised by Joy. And, and this is how he puts it in one of his lovely sentences. He says, I do not believe in the sun, S-U-N, that is, because I can see the sun, but because by the sun I can see everything else. If you like, the sun illuminates everything, and so it is with the S-O-N, the Son of God. When he comes to a life, everything begins to take a new, whole new perspective. Uh, one of the lovely old hymns is, Heaven above is softer blue, earth below is deeper green. Something lives in every hue, Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs overflow. Earth with deeper beauty shine, flowers with deeper beauty, since I know as now, I know I am his, and he is mine. Something happens to a life when Jesus Christ comes in. There's a new life, there's a new birth, there are new appetites, there are new desires. We're surprised by joy. Ian Wilson is an author, lives in England. 
He wrote a book called God's Funeral. And one of his favorite things to do was to attack C.S. Lewis. He ridiculed him because of his Christian faith. But he came to a point where he began to admit, though he was an atheist, that he was an atheist because it fitted in with his lifestyle. It suited what he wanted. But he came more and more to the conviction that his secular understanding of the world made no sense of life in the world or even of his own life. And four or five Easter's ago, he professed faith in Christ and came to Christian faith. Here's another name that many of you will know, a man called John Stott, who was a young man from a secular home in, in England, who later became chaplain to the Queen. But he was taken along to a youth camp. He didn't particularly want to go, but there he went. And he, he talks about hearing the gospel for the first time and, and being convinced that this message was true. And this is what he writes. I knelt in my room, and in a kind of a way I told Jesus Christ that I'd made a mess of my life. I confessed my sins and thanked him for dying for me and asked him to come into my life. And two days later, I recorded in my diary, I felt an immense joy throughout these days. And I realize now that I never knew him before. And then he goes on to say this, you can believe in Christ and admire him. You can say prayers to him through the keyhole. You can push coins under the door for the offering. You can be a moral, decent, upright, baptized and confirmed person, but all the time keeping the door firmly closed to him. There is no substitute for opening the door and inviting him to come in. He says, for anyone, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will fellowship with him or with her. And we will never know God until we do. The testimony of hundreds of thousands of people and of many here. But let me just end with a, a final point, and that is where it all leads to. Charles Darwin, the originator of the theory of evolution, the survival of the fittest, the origin of species, all of that stuff, he tells how he left behind his Christian faith as he became more and more absorbed by science. And he, he studied science to the exclusion of everything else to the point where he lost all joy in life. And he no longer found any beauty, he says, in nature or creation. And this is what he wrote to a friend before he died. He said, I would dearly love to go with you one more Christmas to the Messiah. But I am afraid that my study of science has made me like a dried up leaf. I couldn't appreciate it anymore. His study of science, exclusive study of science, had, he said, left him like a dried up leaf. It had taken all the joy, all the mystery, all the wonder out of life. And so it depends who you put your trust in. It depends uh, what you believe. Everything de depends on that and how it all ends up. There are two views of life, if you like. Two visions for this magnificent world in which we live and the, the people sitting all around you tonight. Two visions for that. There's the secular vision. We're just an accident. A mindless evolutionary accident. A process that did not have us in mind. It had no plan or purpose. And one day the whole thing's going to wind down. Lifeless, empty, pointless. Maybe because of global warming or a cosmic collision or a nuclear explosion. But it's all so much ado about nothing. As Burton Russell said, when I die, I rot. That's it. This whole life that we have lived, this beautiful world and all the architecture and art and music and all of that, 
come to nothing. Much ado about nothing. Or the magnificent vision of the book of Revelation, which portrays in the most beautiful, vivid imagery the completion of God's saving work to restore his broken world to himself, with his people gathered in from every nation, redeemed and perfected by his grace. All things in heaven and in earth restored in Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. And of course the prophets use lovely uh, pictorial language. The lion will sit down with the lamb and the trees of the field will clap their hands and the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the company of God's people gathered around the throne in praise of the lamb he was slain, singing these great songs. Worthy are you, O Lord, for you created all things. Worthy are you, O Lord, for you have redeemed us by your blood. Four or five Easter's ago, I was down in Drogheda, and I happened to see something which gave just a glimpse of this vision, this heavenly vision of the book of Revelation, of how God intends to bring all things together, how that, as it were, penetrated into a secular space in the Dundrum Shopping Center in Dublin. It's a, a huge shopping center with a big atrium in the center and four different floors. And uh, first of all, the, the cameras homed in and shoppers going up and down all these moving staircases with their plastic bags and doing their shopping. And then suddenly they were stopped in their tracks when a magnificent piece of music broke out. And over 400, it's what we call a flash mob, 400 singers uh, organized by RTE broke into the words of the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and forever. Hallelujah. 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 I remember feeling almost moved to tears because in the middle of this secular space, we had a glimpse of heaven, of this heavenly vision. That's the biblical vision. That's the Christian hope. So the question for you and me tonight is in who or in what do you put your faith? What is your vision for life and for death? Is it a hopeless end? That's what the secular world offers. Or an endless hope. The gospel makes all the difference in the world. And that means that you and I must choose whose voice we trust and to whom we give our allegiance. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I want to say thank you for listening. I'm finished. And uh, Peter, I'm not sure what we do now, but it, I'll hand back to you. But thank you for listening. And by the way, uh, just to mention a couple of books which may interest some of you and maybe not, but if you're interested in the whole history of science and how it relates to Christian faith, there's an IVP book by a man called Colin Russell called Interactions Between Science and Faith, which reflects on how the, the greatest scientists of the ages by and large have been Christians and how they worked that out. But a very modern little book written especially for young people and students, written in a very accessible language for non-scientists as well as those who like it. It's by Professor John Lennox, who perhaps many of you know, uh, related to the uh, Christian Lennox and the Gettys, Can Science Explain Everything? A very simple, basic book, and it's by the Good Book Company. You might find that book interesting and helpful. Thank you, Peter.